the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we come before you again this day, and we, we ask you for your guidance, for the gift of the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to receive your message this day. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of your love, which is purifying, which is not meant to punish us, but to open us up to experience more deeply not only who we are, but who you are. We ask you, Lord, to pour your grace upon us this afternoon, that we could come even closer to you and allow ourselves to be loved by you. Amen. Amen. So reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Every time I hear the Beatitudes read, I'm always struck by how different God's ways are than our ways. Or maybe even how strange God is. One of my favorite lines in all of scriptures is in Isaiah, when God says through Isaiah, he says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is very different than us. Thank God. <laughs> Otherwise, if he was like me, he'd be very boring. You know. It's interesting that every, every year around November, December, if you look at the magazines that are out, many of the magazines, they'll have these sort of top ten lists 
of the, of the past year? You know, who are the top 10 most important people? Who are the 10 most beautiful people? Or the most richest, the most influential? And it's interesting that oftentimes our culture, we tend to idolize those people because we think, well, they must be happy because they're rich, they're beautiful, athletic, they're successful. So surely they must be happy. And every time I hear the Beatitudes read, I always think, well, in a, in a way, the Beatitudes are like God's top ten list. And who makes that list? The poor in spirit. Those who mourn. Those who are meek. Those who are pure in heart. Who are merciful. Who are peacemakers. It's quite a different list, isn't it? Than the ones we see in the world. And the question is, which list are we most concerned about? Worry about that. Which list have we spent most of our life trying to be on? We could give a whole retreat on the Beatitudes, but what's so beautiful about the Beatitudes is that what they really are is a self-portrait of Christ. It is Jesus alone who is completely pure, who is completely meek, who is completely merciful. And because the Beatitudes are, in a sense, a mirror of Christ, a reflection of Christ, or sort of a window into who He is, they also reveal to us what we should be like. They are, in a very real way, our standard or our goal. By and large, the most important top ten list that we should be concerned about. There comes a point in our lives where we really have to ask ourselves, where we really have to be honest with ourselves and say or answer this question, do I really want what God wants? Do I want to be the person that God wants me to be and to live the life he wants me to live. Or do I just want God to be an idol that I can control, that I can, in a sense, 
manipulate. Do I use God in a sense just to make myself feel good that I've maybe done my obligation? I went to church on Sunday or I said my prayer, so I'm good. Not going to go to hell. If that's so, then there is a deep purification that needs to happen in our lives. And that word purification, it can be a bit scary. It can be a bit overwhelming. What does that exactly mean? What does that look like? It's almost like a cleansing. There's a cleansing that needs to happen in my heart, in my own soul. And the reason is because, well, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I am not poor in spirit. Oftentimes I am not meek. Or I'm not merciful. Oftentimes, I want God to be an idol that I can control, that I can manipulate. That way I wouldn't get thrown into giving retreats at the last minute. Needless to say, God's ways are so different than what we're used to, and maybe even what we have been taught, maybe even what the world considers to be good, to be beautiful and true. When I started college, I just started discerning my vocation, and I was, I was dating this, this girl, Rebecca, and we just started talking, and it was about, I think it was probably about March, and we just started talking and hanging out, and she was a beautiful, beautiful young woman who was so in love with God, just such a wonderful person. And we talked for a few months, and as the end of the semester was going on, we were, it was the week of finals. I remember we were talking about, well, are we going to talk at all this summer? And I'll never forget what she said to me, because she said, if you want to talk to me, you have to call my father and get his permission. I was like, whoa, <laughs> what planet did you grow up on? <laughs> And I'll never forget it. It took me like a week to actually make that phone call. And I called and I, I talked to her father and just simply said, you know, your, your daughter and I have been talking and yeah, we like hanging out with each other. And I was like, do, do I have your permission to continue talking with her over the summer? And he asked me, he said directly, he said, well, what are your intentions? I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I said, I just like hanging out with her. And he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, 
until you know what God is calling you to, don't talk to my daughter, he said, because my daughter is not an experiment for you to figure out God's will. Whoa. <laughs> they were, their family was, they were evangelical Christians and just, they really, they loved the Lord, but that experience reminded me that their Christianity, their outlook on life was very different from the world's ways, right? Not that dating is bad, of course it's not bad. But this father was so protective of his daughter that he could tell I wasn't sure what God was calling me to. And rather, in a sense, try to figure that out by dating his daughter, he said, no, you have to go and figure it out between you and God first. It was a powerful, powerful testimony to me. As you can tell, didn't end up dating her. Probably, that's a whole nother retreat I could give. But. <laughs> but anyway, and you know, it proposes the question what is the gospel? You know, the, the word gospel literally means good news, right? It is the good news of God. And it's not an opinion poll, right? The gospel is not. A philosophy, it's not a system of morality, it's not man-made wisdom, it's not psychology, all of which are not bad things, of course. But St. Paul says in the letter to the Romans, he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. And I often reflect on that. What is the power of God? I think when we think about that, we, we might automatically be led to think of the power of God in the Bible, in certain scenes where Israel is leaving Egypt, right? And God parts the waters for Israel to walk through. And then all of a sudden, he closes in the waters. The power of God. Or when God gives Samson the strength to overtake his enemies after he had broken his vow as a Nazarite. And the Philistines are all around him. And he prays to God for the strength to defeat his enemies. And we might read that and think, wow, that's the, that's the power of God. God is strong. But the real power of God, the real power of the gospel, is revealed most fully to us on Christmas morning. When God becomes not a man, yes, but a baby. When God becomes a baby. When God becomes weak, vulnerable, and in need, that is the power of God. So different than what we think of as power and as strength. 
And literally, the whole world is turned upside down by the Incarnation. The Incarnation being that theological word that says that God became man, that describes that reality. In the Gospel of John, in, the, in his prologue, in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word was made flesh. Probably the most powerful words ever written. That God, who is above and beyond all that we can know, think, understand, even imagine, becomes flesh, just like you and I. That he enters our world the very same way we do. And so just by nature, the incarnation is purifying. It, in a sense, puts us in our place and it places God where he belongs. Outside of every box that we try to put him in. And outside of every label we try to place on him. In my opinion, it is in this silent prayer where this purification is really turned up a notch. It's like a summer day in Houston. <laughs> and the reason I believe that's so is because nothing reveals to us and makes us aware of our own poverty, of our own neediness, of our own even selfishness, like silence. Hence the reason why the world, and maybe even ourselves, why we oftentimes run away from silence and try to distract ourselves. Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher, writing, I believe, in the 17th century, he said that the problem with modern man is that he can no longer spend an hour in his room alone. He said that 300 years ago. The problem is that we can no longer spend an hour in our room alone. And he attributed all of the world's problems to that very fact. Silence is purifying. And as important and as necessary as things like discursive meditation is or any other forms of prayer, they're all very important and necessary. But there's still a way in which I'm, I'm, when I'm praying like that, that I can be the one controlling it. If I'm praying with, with scripture, it's a great thing to do, I can in a sense choose what I want to reflect on. Now obviously, ideally, we're just open to the Holy Spirit and he leads us. But there's a real danger in me sort of choosing my image of God, what I want to pray with, what I want to reflect on, how I want 
God to be. You know, it's amazing. People use the Bible for so many strange beliefs, right? To justify their own agenda and their own craziness. But it is in silent prayer where at least ideally I am being invited to let go of the steering wheel. It's why it can be so terrifying to drive without any hands. Because we think if I let go my life this situation? Who will help me? Who will care for me? My mind tells me that God will care for me. That's who he is, right? That's what he does. But does my heart really believe that? In this silent prayer, there is nowhere left to hide. And that's exactly what God wants. And hence, the, really, the only option is to let God cover me with his love and with his mercy. In a sense, to throw oneself at his feet. Oftentimes when this happens to us, we think, am I doing something wrong? Is God punishing me? As you probably know, Mother Teresa spent 40 years of her life in darkness. From the moment she received the call to begin her community to work with the poor, up until about two weeks before she died, she had no felt experience of God. She had no sense experience of God. When she would pray, it was almost as if her heart became like ice and she felt nothing. For 40 years, she lived like that. And yet, it didn't stop her from loving God, from serving God, from picking up dead bodies all over the street all day, being misunderstood by people, loved by some, hated by others. Was she doing something wrong? Obviously not. There's a saying that I like that says that God reveals to heal. That if God is bringing something up or if we're becoming aware of something, it's not God punishing us, but God is bringing it up to invite, initiate healing. If he is bringing something up, it's because it's time for the both of you to look at this thing, whatever it might be, but not you alone. So prayer is not a mirror where I'm just looking at myself, but to look at it with God, 
to look at it with his eyes, his eyes of mercy, his eyes of love. St. Augustine says that the whole purpose of life is to restore to health the eye of the heart through which we see God. And what did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And we enter this world sort of struggling with this reality that we call original sin. We enter this world, G.K. Chesterton said, original sin is the one dogma in which there is a ton of empirical proof. <laughs> Meaning all you have to do is turn on the news or step outside or look into your own family or look into your own heart and you will see that there's this struggle that we have within us. But this if we want to call it a disease, does not have to be terminal. Yes, we are all struggling, but we are not without hope. In the early church, they oftentimes referred to Jesus as the divine physician, the divine healer. Thomas Keating always refers to him as the divine therapist, you know, sort of more modern language for us to understand all saying the same thing, that it is Jesus who wants to heal us, Jesus who wants to bring us to healing. Because in Christianity, the one who can really see is the one who says, I'm blind. How often times in the Gospels, the most educated, the most religious ones don't recognize Jesus. And yet it is the poor people oftentimes, the ones who are suffering in some way from some physical handicap, who if they just hear his name, they know who he is and he cries out to them. And Jesus rushes to that person. In Christianity, the one who is strong is the one who says, I am weak. Paul says that over and over. It's when I'm weak that I am strong. Where I'm living right now, the friary I'm living in, it's called, it's called a, a house of prayer. And for the last, I guess, maybe a year and a half that I've been living there, I've been sort of living this, this balance of spending time in hermitage each, each month on the property where I live. We have these little hermitages that I built and trying to spend about a week or so, 10 days, maybe every month in, in hermitage. So where I'm really just completely alone uh, with, with God and maybe once a month going out and, and doing some preaching. So I'm trying to balance this, this life. Actually, this past month, it hasn't been going so well because every time I try to go on retreat, I end up giving the retreat. <laughs> so, they, they say that God speaks in stereo. So it's like, all right, turn down the volume. But in that uh, last year and a half, 
more than ever in my life, I've had a lot of time of, of silence, a lot of time of solitude, which is already built into our, our regular life, but this, is, this has been even something more in where I'm living. And you know what I've realized in this past year and a half? It doesn't sound so good, but I've realized more deeply than ever about myself how desperately weak I am. How desperately prideful, self-obsessed, and afraid I can be. And this deeper revelation has been one of the greatest blessings in my life. It's completely changed the way that I work with the poor. I don't like to use that language, work with the poor, minister, be with the poor. Because when I joined the Franciscans 15 years ago, I really thought I was doing something for them. I was coming there to help them. And you know, on one level, it's, it's probably true. But now, because of this deeper experience I've had with solitude and silence, I realize in a real way, and this is not just pious language, but I realize that I'm really one of them. That what they are externally is what I am internally. And that the only thing that separates us is circumstances. I'm so aware that when, when they come to our door, whether they're strung out on drugs or drunk or just all kinds of possibilities, that it could be me as well. If only maybe the circumstances in my life were a little different. And I've asked the question, you know, has God brought this up for me to punish me? And it's clear to me that the answer is no. That he has helped me realize this more deeply to make me more compassionate, to make me more merciful, to make me more forgiving, to make me more like him. And this, I believe, has been a fruit of my own silent prayer, my own times of being before God without the masks, without the illusions, without what other people might say or think. And so if you all continue in this way of silent prayer, over time, maybe you might realize 
I need to ask this person in my life for forgiveness. Or maybe I need to forgive, allow myself to forgive someone in my life. You might realize that you need to let go and stop trying to control everyone and everything. Or you might get inspired to help someone, to reach out to someone in need, in practical and concrete ways, and not just think about it. If that happens, then praise God. Because it means you are truly meeting the living God in your prayer. And not an image or not an idol of your own making. When I was a novice in my community, we had this I don't even know what to call it. It was an exercise where all of our classmates, there was 14 men in my class, and about halfway through the year, so we had already spent a year and a half together. And it was my novice director's bright idea to do this exercise. It was called Gifts and Gaps. And so you'd get 14 index cards, and you'd write the brother's name, and you'd write their gifts, and then you'd write their gaps on one side. And then you met with a, the novice master, and he would simply say what, how, what everyone sees in you. And of course, you know, you acknowledge the gifts, right? <laughs> say, yes, that's good. He's very, he can see well, right? And the, the gaps come along. Oh, he's crazy. What does he know? You know? <laughs> and it's really, in my own life, it's only recently where some of those gaps are starting to come into focus for me. I'm like, okay. Maybe he wasn't crazy. Maybe there's some truth there. And that's a good thing. God reveals to heal, not to punish, not to make us feel bad about ourselves, but to heal. And so it's important never to judge your prayer. Don't even judge, in a sense, yourself. Forget about yourself, at least for a little while, and keep your eyes on Jesus. Look at your life through him. Allow him to be the mirror in which you see yourself. When I was young as well, I remember thinking just how silly my parents' rules were. You know, being home before dark, finishing your homework, brushing your teeth every day. It's like, really, Mom? Like, <laughs> but obviously, as I got older, I began to realize that they made these rules not because they were trying to be mean, but because they loved me. And they were trying to create an environment in which I could genuinely grow as a human being. And God is the very same way. This purification he intends for us 
is only meant to help us to grow, to become the people who we really are. And so, thank God that His ways are different than ours. Not only different, but much more beautiful, much more fulfilling than we could even imagine, and really even understand. But to experience this, I and we need to let go and allow God to complete his work in us. God wants to purify us because he wants us to come to full maturity. And so I'll just close by with really just a word of encouragement to keep going, to keep spending time each day in silence, to keep allowing yourself to be purified, to keep allowing yourself or at least opening yourself to his love. And over time, we will find ourselves on that list, God's top 10 list of the Beatitudes. We will experience more deeply how truly blessed we are to be pure of heart, to be merciful, to be meek, and to be humble and to be his children. Amen.